Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. Have you ever had that experience where you catch yourself in a moment of, I don't know, anger or judgmentalism or fear, and with a wince, you immediately tell yourself a whole story about what kind of person you are. I am irretrievably rageful, irreparably bigoted, irredeemably anxious, and so forth. So what do you do about this? How do you stop this from happening or cut it short once it's already begun? The answer, and this will be completely unsurprising to anybody who has ever listened to this show before, is mindfulness. Having the basic self-awareness to see what kind of mental states are arising for you in any given moment so that you're not owned by said mental states. To use a technical Buddhist term, this is called mindfulness of mind. It's the ability to see your mind states without taking them personally. Today, we're going to learn about the whys and wherefores of mindfulness of mind from one of the most esteemed living Buddhist scholars. Bhikkhu Bodhi is a monk, originally from New York City. He is a prolific translator, scholar, and author of books on the Buddha's teachings. He's also the president of the Buddhist Association of the United States and co-founder and chairperson of the board of Buddhist Global Relief. I love this guy because he's not only erudite, but also incredibly practical in his advice. I should say this is the latest installment of our series on the four foundations of mindfulness. As you may know, the Buddha was a big list maker, and one of his most famous lists was the four foundations of mindfulness, which is basically a list of four ways to be mindful, to wake up, to stop sleepwalking through your life. If you missed the previous episodes, go back and check them out. We've put links in the show notes here. That said, you do not have to have heard them in order to listen to this one. In this conversation, we talk about the historical backdrop of the four foundations of mindfulness, what exactly the Buddha meant by mindfulness of mind, how we can know whether or not we're actually being mindful, which is a question a lot of people have, how not to let our mindfulness become a sort of compulsive inner nanny state, Bhikkhu Bodhi's practical instructions for mindfulness of mind, given that the Buddha never actually provided any and his view that we should not be mindfulness zealots. There are, he argues, many other arrows in the quiver of the Buddha's teachings. For example, he's going to talk about some specific antidotes for difficult mind states, such as anger, lust, and delusion. All right, we'll get started with today's guest right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thr- Thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the... Uh, Underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. 
Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Bhikkhu Bodhi, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I'm glad to join you again. Let's start at the at the highest level here. Can you give us some historical and textual context for the four foundations of mindfulness? How important a text is this within the Buddhist canon? Yeah, certainly within the Theravada tradition, the tradition of Buddhism to which I belong, the tradition that prevails in the countries of Southern Asia. The Satipatthana Sutta is regarded as the maybe the paramount sutta for the practice of meditation, and particularly for the development of a particular type of meditation, which involves both the development of calm or concentration and insight, either alternatively or simultaneously. Can you Talk about the difference between calm slash concentration and insight for a layperson. Yeah, these are two basic modalities which are involved in the development of meditation. So ideally, meditation should involve what we call calm, or the Pali word is samatha, which involves the calming down of the mind and the concentration of the mind in the sense of collecting the mind and developing the ability to keep the mind focused upon the object without distraction, without disturbance. That is the aim in the development of calming meditation. And then the counterpart is insight meditation, or vipassana, which is the development of the ability to see clearly and directly into the actual nature of things, to see the constituent phenomena that make up experience, and particularly to see those phenomena in a particular way, to see them in terms of their conditioned origination, their conditional arising, their dependence on conditions, and then moving from there to see them in terms of what are called the three universal characteristics of phenomena, that is impermanence, then dukkha, which in this context means not suffering, but having an unsatisfactory nature as being in some way defective or flawed or unsatisfactory. And then the third characteristic is anatta, which means not a self, not a true substantial basis for our personal identity. I'm going to try to restate some of this. Inevitably, I will Screw it up, so... Yeah, just use your own intuition, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I think what you're saying is that this Satipatthana Sutta, this classic set of statements by the Buddha, is guiding listeners, meditators, into two 
forms of meditation that work well together. First is to get the mind calm, concentrated, collected, turn down the volume on discursive, random thinking. And the second is insight, which is to see that whatever's coming up in our mind right now, in particular, it might be a powerful emotion like anger. Well, the, the temptation is to see this as my anger, this big monolithic force stampeding through my mind, and I've got to obey all of its horrible orders. With insight, I might see, oh, yeah, this is a collection of bodily sensations. This is uh, um, not anything I can call mine, per se. Um, and it's often accompanied by a bunch of self-righteous, rageful thoughts, none of which I can lay claim to and don't have to obey blindly. Um, so is is that a, as a rough summary uh, somewhat near the mark? That, I would say, will summarize somewhat of a more elementary stage. But like once the capacity for insight is fully unfolding, then one is able to maintain the mind sort of clearly and consistently on what I call the ongoing flow of experience. And so it's not so much that one is dealing with the states of rage or states of strong desire, though they might come up, of course, but one just remains focused on the flow of experience and one just sees whatever is occurring is occurring in a process of arising and passing away. Why would I want to sit and watch the relentless flow of change? <laughs> I think one initially begins not with the motivation of wanting to watch the relentless flow of phenomena, but usually we start, we come into the practice because we want to do something about our own suffering. <laughs> and so we might start off with a more elementary type of meditation, more basic type of meditation, and, you know, it's just simply watching the breath or observing sensations or maybe doing mindful walking. But as the mind sort of settles down, then one sees that one of the underlying roots, maybe the primary underlying root of one's experience suffering is a clinging to things as being I and mine. In other words, taking what happens to one, taking it personally, <laughs> and that one is always observing and experiencing from a sort of standpoint of, from a, a platform of the idea of I am at the center of this experience, and this experience is relating to me as a subject standing behind the observation, behind the experience. And so then one understands that since there is this deep-rooted clinging to the idea of self here and to the twin ideas of I and mine, to really get free from suffering at the deepest level, one has to eliminate the clinging to I and mine. And one can understand, sort of, if one becomes familiar with the Buddha's teaching, that the ideas of I and mine rest on the pillar of the idea of permanence, of lastingness, of there being some kind of persistent identity. And so one has to develop the capacity for sustained attention. And then one turns that beam of sustained attention to the flow of experience and starts seeing everything that's occurring, undergoing arising and passing away. Then gradually the clinging to the idea of I and mine gets eroded, starts to wear away. So we all know, everybody knows that things change, but on some deep subconscious level, we don't really believe it. And the point of this practice is to explode, or that's probably too aggressive, maybe undermine that subconscious assumption. Yeah, I think undermine is a more adequate word than explode, because it's generally, it's a gradual process rather than the sudden, well, sometimes there will be sudden breakthroughs, but generally it's a gradual, long-term process. So we've been running a series on the show where we go through the four foundations of mindfulness, and today we're going to talk about the third. I recommend to listeners to go back and listen to the previous episodes. We'll put links in the show notes. But the third 
foundation of mindfulness or the third of the four ways that the Buddha described that one can establish this capacity to be mindful is called mindfulness of mind. What does that mean? Yeah, the Pali expression is cheat anupassana. And the word citta, you see, we translate that as mind. But the word mind is very general, the English word mind, whereas the Pali word citta would suggest the state of mind. So this is the direct contemplation of the state of one's mind. And the text itself, the the Satipatthana Sutta, enumerates, as a kind of guide to the practitioner, it enumerates 16 states of mind which are presented in pairs, eight pairs. So the eight pairs would be the mind accompanied by lust and the mind without lust, the mind accompanied by aversion, without aversion, the mind accompanied by delusion, the mind without delusion. So those are three pairs which take the three root defilements, lust, hatred, and delusion, and contrast them with the opposites, with the mind free from those three root defilements. Then we have some further pairs, which I translate the cramped mind or constricted mind and the scattered mind. Then we have the developed mind and the undeveloped mind, the surpassable mind and the unsurpassable mind, the concentrated mind and the unconcentrated mind, and the freed mind and the bound mind or the unfreed mind. Okay. I have a million questions. Can you define root defilement? Yeah, the way the Buddha treats his analysis of the mind, so he speaks about like the main problem that we face in our spiritual development is the persistent grip of certain unwholesome or harmful or detrimental mental states upon the mind. And those detrimental mental states are what he calls, or what we call in English, in the English translation, we call this defilements, and the Pali word is kilesa. But the texts, the discourses of the Buddha mention many, many different defilements. Sometimes we have sets of 16, 80 defilements, and so on and so forth. But the Buddha's texts see all of those defilements as stemming from three most basic defilements, which are what we call the root defilements. And those root defilements are loba or raga, which is greed and also rendered as lust, hatred, and delusion. And from each of those root defilements, one could trace out other defilements, which become sort of secondary or derivative defilements. And so sometimes it's said that the task of the Buddhist path is the removal of lust, hatred, and delusion. So the goal of the third foundation of mindfulness, the goal of mindfulness of mind, is to be aware of what your mind state is right now. And this list, these pairs, are pretty good roadmap to the available mind states to uh, members of Homo sapiens. Yeah. I was teaching a course, a a retreat, a few months ago, where we moved from contemplation of the body to contemplation of the mind, and then to help, you know, the practitioners understand what they should be looking for. I took each of those three so-called root defilements and then elaborated each one so that one could see what would be comprised under each of those headings. So I had, okay, the mind with lust. And here the problem is with the English word lust, corresponding to the Pali Raga, is that it suggests too much of sexual lust in the narrow sense. So I elaborated upon this by saying, under this heading of Raga, we could include desire for the five enjoyable sense objects, beautiful sights, sounds, odors, tastes, tactile sensations. 
then we could have things like the desire for fame, honor, praise, desire for wealth, desire for position and power over others, desire for friends in a kind of maybe obsessive sense, like with Facebook, you want to see how many friends you can accumulate even though you don't know the people. So desire for friends, attachment to loved ones, craving for delicious food, then the addictions, craving for alcoholic drinks and drugs and so forth. So all of those could come under the mind with lust, then under the mind with hatred. Okay, so we have Sadov with raw hatred, visceral hatred, but then it can move on to a kind of persisting resentment, ill will, annoyance, irritation, malice, hostility, envy and jealousy, bitterness, anger, violent tendencies, belligerence, and so forth. Yeah, the mind with delusion is maybe a bit more difficult than the other two. So the way I sort of expanded upon it was to take, okay, delusion might include things like cynical doubt or skeptical doubt, wrong views, idle speculation, ego pride, conceit, vanity, haughtiness, nationalism, racism, religious dogmatism, religious nationalism, and so forth. So all of those can be taken as manifestations or consequences of delusion. I imagine the point is, once you develop the capacity to see these root defilements and the other defilements in your mind, then you're not so owned by them. And so that kind of leads to the question of, so how do you learn to get a more resolution on your mind states, which tend to change throughout the day? Yeah, well, within the actual practice of satipatthana, the practice of, of mindful observation, the task is not so much to make an effort to control the state of mind, but simply to note and to observe what state of mind has, has arisen. So, of course, mindfulness has to work together with right effort so that one is not indulging those states that arise. But part of the right effort here is the effort just to note whatever mind state has arisen and to note it clearly and then to drop it, to let it go. And then it will be followed by other mind states will arise. But this is where the observation of individual states of mind starts as it builds up momentum, then it starts to turn into a continuous and consistent observation of what is taking place within the mind. So that the mind states are occurring, you know, not as solid blocks which control and dominate the mind, but just like little flickers of mental states, which just pop their head up for a moment, and then when they are recognized and identified, then they fall away. Yeah, I came up with a certain simile to illustrate how this process takes place, if I could relate that. Please. I compare this to, like, we have a shop in which there are goods for sale, and there are no mirrors, you know, in the corners to observe the rows, and there's no inspector on the floor. Okay, so we have a kleptomaniac comes into the shop, and he looks around, and he sees that there are no mirrors, no observation mirrors, and so he's able to take some goods, put it into his pocket, and then maybe dispel any suspicion. He might buy a cheap item, and then he walks out, and he's taken the valuable items with him. Okay, so that is like the way the mind ordinarily works without observation. But when we have corner mirrors, which are reflecting the image of the hidden rows back to the cashier or to somebody, an inspector on the floor, then when the thief comes into the shop, then he'll look around and he'll see that he's under observation, that there are these mirrors reflecting him in every row, and then he'll just leave the shop empty-handed and maybe go to another shop. And so in this way, when the mind is not 
under observation, the way the mind ordinarily works, when these unwholesome or defiled mental states arise, we don't recognize them. And in that way, those states are able to gain power over the mind, to gain control over the mind, and to dominate the mind. But it's when we use the power of mindfulness to simply recognize the state of mind that's arisen, identify it, and then drop it, that the state of mind is able to pass without doing any damage to the texture of the mind. Coming up, Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about how we can know whether we're actually being mindful, how not to let our mindfulness become a sort of compulsive inner nanny state, and he provides some instructions for practicing mindfulness of mind on the meditation cushion. We'll be right back. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with, with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, uh, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. How do we know when we're actually being mindful? It's a good question because <laughs> so many times, I mean, I've sat thinking I'm being, <laughs> I've sat thinking I'm being mindful, and then I realize that I've been way back in the past or planning things for the future. <laughs> but let us say that the defining characteristic of mindfulness, there are many ways to conceptualize mindfulness, but the way I would put it succinctly, at least with the kind of practice that one undertakes in the foundations of mindfulness, that mindfulness is keeping oneself under observation, keeping the either observing things going on in the physical body or keeping the mind under observation, the feelings or the mind under observation. So when one can recognize that one is sustaining that process of self-observation, then one knows that one is being mindful. But at other times, one can be sitting with the intention of being mindful, but the mind will drift away from mindfulness. And that's quite natural and normal too. But then when one realizes that the mind has drifted, and, well, that recognition that the mind has drifted is itself a function of mindfulness. This observation language you're using, I, I can see in my own mind, and I can imagine this happening in other people's minds, a militance or a setting up of a sort of internal nanny state that can get compulsive rather than helpful. Yeah, that can happen. It depends on how one undertakes that process of observation, the kind of attitude and mindset that one brings to the process of what I call observation. So it can be 
as you said, something of a, a nanny state if one maybe brings the wrong approach. But I would say that the healthy and fruitful approach is that one comes to the process of observation, keeping the mind soft, gentle, non-judgmental, but also curious to see and understand what is taking place. I say it's primarily that sort of, what I call that soft, gentle, relaxed, but diligent framework in which the contemplation or observation takes place that keeps it on the right track and prevents it from becoming a process by which one engages in self-blame, self-condemnation, and so forth. Just to go back to the practical here, as I understand it, nowhere in the sutta does the Buddha actually give detailed instructions on how to establish mindfulness of one's mind states. But you've come up with uh, some instructions. Would you mind walking us through them? Yeah, uh, this was interesting also because in my own sort of experience of trying to practice uh, according to the method of the Satipatthana Sutta, when it came to the mindfulness of the mind, couldn't find what I would call clear, direct, systematic explanations of how one undertakes the, the contemplation of the mind. So as I sort of reflected on this, I developed a method. I don't want to say that it's under copyright, a patent registration or anything like that, but it just seemed to be an effective way to see what's going on in, in the mind. So what I did was to take as a focus point of observation the word mind. And so to undertake this, I would have to build up a certain momentum of maybe mindfulness and capacity for concentration through the practice of a method like mindfulness of breathing, so that the initial tendency of the mind to wander, to get overrun by thoughts and emotions and so on, settles down somewhat and the mind becomes more quiet and sort of stabilized. Then I would run through the mind, the word mind, and make the task just to observe within the mind, the word mind, as it's being mentally verbalized. And so when I'm doing this, it's not an automatic process like reciting a mantra, but one is turning the mind back upon itself to watch the word mind as it is passing through the mind with each mental recitation of the word mind. And so mentally reciting the word mind keeps the mind focused upon itself. And so one is watching the word mind, 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 passing through the mind. But what inevitably happens is before long, you've lost the word mind or you're just, or I'm just reciting it without mindfulness, and the mind is has wandered. It's strayed into any of the bypaths of mental activity. And so when that happens, what one does is to identify what is that mental state that has arisen. And that's where I found that I'm applying the template that the contemplation of the mind section of the Satipatthana Sutta gives us. So if it's a mind, say, desiring things, say thinking about the meal is coming up, maybe it's the morning, if I'm in my room and then I get the smells coming from the kitchen, then I'm thinking, ah, craving for delicious food, mind with desire, mind with lust. If I'm thinking of somebody did something wrong to me and I'm angry about it, then it's mind with hatred, mind with anger. If I'm just maybe engaging in some speculations or some doubts, then it becomes mind with delusion. And then also while I was doing this, I also noticed that in, I would have to say that the section on contemplation of mind in the Satipatthana Sutta, even though it has these 16 pairs of contrasting mental states, but it's not all inclusive for contemplating what is taking place within the mind. So then I found it's useful to use another template, 
which I partly started to sketch, which is to see where is the mind dwelling? What is it dwelling on? And then I found that when the mind is not present, when it's not focused on the present, then it's gone in either of two directions. It's either gone back to the past or it's jumped ahead to the future. And so we have mind dwelling on the past, which will be remembering the past, either accurately or inaccurately. And then when the mind dwells on the past, it could be dwelling on the past either with, you might say, the sorrowful emotions, that is, with sadness, maybe with grief, with distress, regret, remorse, guilt, or it could be dwelling on the past with happy states, happy memories, joyful memories, nostalgia, fondness for the past. So that would be mind dwelling on the past, and then we could have mind projecting on the other side of the tracks, mind projecting into the future, and then the mind can be projecting into the future with imagination, with desire, craving, hope, and expectations, or with, on the other negative side, with fear, worry, anxiety, or, so those would be rooted in aversion, or it could be projecting into the future in ways that would be based on delusion, with idle imaginings, with idle expectations, and so forth. Probably you could expand these lists still further, but these were some of the types of mental activity that I, I sketched <laughs> on the basis of my own lived experience in trying to practice <laughs> contemplation of the mind. <laughs> so let me just see if I can state these meditation instructions back to you. The first is to repeat the word mind silently in your own mind at a decent clip, mind, mind, mind. And that has the, well, actually, I missed the step. The first is you may want to get calm, concentrated, collected by sitting and focusing on the breath for a while, which can create some level of focus in the mind. Then you bring in this kind of mantra of the word mind within your own mind. Yeah, but I, I don't want to use the word mantra. Right, because you're not, it's, it's not quite a mantra. Yeah, it's not like a mechanical recitation. What's the difference between your suggested use of this repetition of the word mind? What's the difference between that and what you are calling a mechanical repetition? I guess the mechanical repetition, you're just reciting it without, well, let's say the point, the way I use the word mind, the point is to turn the mind back upon itself in order to observe the mind by running the word mind through the mind. So as I'm saying this word mind, it's reminding me to look at the machinery of this thing or not a thing called the mind. Yeah, yeah. Inevitably, then I will get distracted. And at that point, when I wake up from distraction, I can see, oh, what is the state of mind in which I've been dwelling during this distraction? And I can make a note of it. And then I'm starting to get into this habit of seeing the mind states that grip me. Exactly, yeah. And I should also add to this that at a certain point when one develops the, let us say, the skill in observing the mind by using the word mind as a reminder to turn back and observe the mind, once one develops a certain skill and momentum with that, then what I found in my practice, that then I can then drop the word mind and then I just remain focused on that constant, we call it the flux of mental activity. And so at that point, one is seeing what's going on within the mind occurring at very, very rapid pace, just kind of rapid arising and vanishing of, of thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on, just coming almost instantaneously. Is that achievable off of retreat? Because I've had a few moments on meditation retreat day seven or whatever, where I click into this state of dramatically reduced 
mental chatter and am much more on top of whatever's happening in my mind. The things coming in through the ear and the eye and the physical sensations and the random thoughts, urges, and emotions, I'm right on top of it in a way that I'm not in my daily life. So this kind of sustained mindfulness that you're describing, is that something we can expect in our daily, you know, 10-minute meditation? I say very difficult in a 10-minute meditation, even in a 45-minute meditation. Very, I, I could sort of get into that state pretty much only in a retreat setting or after doing like several hours of meditation a day in a, in a stretch. In the day-to-day, like regular practice, I would do the contemplation of mind, but it's, I'm almost reliant on using the word mind as a focal point for turning back on the mind. But to get into that sort of just the unverbalized observation of the constant rapid flux of mental events, that takes place to pick up the momentum for that. It pretty much requires, for for me, a, a retreat setting. Maybe somebody who has sharper faculties can do it just with a regular daily practice. But I have rather, <laughs> I'm, I'm a slow, a, a bit of a slow boat, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you're in good company or bad company, <laughs> as the case may be. So hence, as you said, the value of this technique that you developed of just repeating the word mind to remind us to be awake. So we've just finished talking about an on-the-cushion practice that we can use to practice mindfulness of mind. How would you recommend we remain attentive to, awake to, aware of our mind states when we're off the cushion as we're moving through the world? Yeah, it's it's very critical for us to maintain, let's say, our calm, our balance, our effectiveness in dealing with situations to have some degree of mindfulness of the mind in the midst of our everyday activities. What I would say is that it's the capacity for self-observation that we develop through a formal meditation practice, whether one is doing a practice like mindfulness of breathing or body contemplation or contemplation of mind, that doesn't matter. But that gives us the ability to monitor, to recognize the states of mind that arise within our everyday life, and then to be able to deal with them effectively, not to be overwhelmed by them and carried away by them. But when we recognize them as they arise, then we're able to, especially the unwholesome or impulsive mental states, we're able to, just by recognizing them, and if necessary, keeping them under momentary observation, we're able to help them to settle down and to become still and not to control us. I'm having two thoughts. I'm going to say them both, but we might want to attack them individually. The first is that it seems to me that you are articulating right there the, to use a business term, value proposition of this third foundation of mindfulness, which is that when you're aware of whatever emotion is, as I said before, <laughs> stampeding through the mind, you are less likely to be carried away by it. The second thought I had is that at least the first foundation of mindfulness, which we, we have discussed a couple of weeks ago, which is just being aware of the body, and that can be just as something as simple as just watching your breath, that seems to me to be a way to achieve the third foundation of mindfulness, which is well, as soon as you've learned to just watch, pay attention to something as simple as the breath, well, that just boosts our self-awareness, our mindfulness in a way that would allow us to see when anger is present. Yeah, that's exactly true. What I would say is that the previous two foundations of mindfulness also prepare one for the direct observation of the mind. And so that we could say that all of the four foundations of mindfulness are really, in some way, practices of observation of the mind or contemplation of the mind. And it's quite, I mean, natural that that should be the case because the focus of the Buddha's teaching is upon understanding and training and developing and liberating the mind. And so even when one takes an object like mindfulness of breathing, where the task is to keep the focus of the attention on the breath, what is happening is that that intention of observing the breath is illuminating 
the way one's mind normally works, but which we don't recognize because we don't have a clear light to shine on it, or we don't have a kind of backdrop against which to see it. Yeah, I have a simile for this. It's like, you know, in a room where, which hasn't been cleaned up in a long time, like in a basement or an attic, there'll be particles of dust floating in the air. And if one opens the door and one is still in a fair amount of darkness, you don't see those particles of dust. But if you turn on the light or open the curtain so that a beam of sunlight comes through, then you can see that there are these particles of dust floating in the air. And so that's somewhat like the task of turning the attention to the breath is a bit like pushing away the curtain to let the beam of sunlight come through so that one could then see the particles of dust floating through our own mind. Yeah, so even a practice like mindfulness of breathing is in a way sort of foreshadowing and even to a degree participating in the observation of the mind, the contemplation of the mind. After the break, Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about ways that we can see our mind states without telling ourselves a big story about whatever emotions we're experiencing and what they say about us. And he lays out specific meditation strategies for dealing with struggles that are common for many of us, ranging from anger to lust. Keep it here. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me, and in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. When it comes to hiring, don't go searching for the one. Just meet your match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming, I wish I had used Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to mention something to you that a few weeks back, we talked to Joseph Goldstein. He kicked off this series on the four foundations of mindfulness. And and when we were talking in my interview with Joseph, we sort of zipped through all four foundations. And subsequently, we've had a series of episodes that have gone deep on each of the foundations individually. But when Joseph and I were talking about this third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind, he said one little pitfall is that when we are mindful of unwholesome mind states, you know, when we notice greed or hatred or confusion, distraction, it's quite human to 
tell ourselves a whole story about what kind of person we are based on whatever neurotic obsession is flitting through our mind. We could be, you know, moving along in our life or in our practice, trying to be aware of our mind states. And then we notice anger. And then very quickly, we move into a whole story about how we are angry people and we're never not going to be angry people or we're, we're so anxious and this is just, you know, this has been the way I am and I'm always going to be like this because my dad was like this, et cetera, et cetera. We see something really quickly in our mind, a mind state, and we tell a big story. Okay, so those would be examples of what we call like identifying oneself with those states of mind and then constructing one's sense of identity on the basis, on the foundation of those particular states of mind. And so one of the sort of benefits of the contemplation of the mind, but let's say two of the benefits, at least two of the benefits, one, you see how quickly the mind works? I mentioned two benefits and now I forgot the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, now I, I got them back into the mind. Okay, the first benefit is that when one sees that the mental states are constantly changing, That helps to break the identification with that state of mind so that one, let us say, a state of anger arises, one remembers some aggressive behavior that somebody displayed towards yourself or somebody took your share of something or got the credit where you should have gotten the credit. And so then the mind is dwelling in anger and it might build up, if you don't approach it in a skillful way, it builds up the sense that I'm an angry person But if you have a proper application of the contemplation of the mind, the observation of the mind, one recognizes this is just a state of anger that has arisen. It is not permanent. It's not my true identity, but it is just a conditioned state of mind. And then as one observes it, it loses its force. And so it starts to become weaker and then it will drop away, at least temporarily. And sometimes one of the things that strikes me in this practice is that when the mind changes and shifts into another state of mind, you look back and you were thinking, in the case of anger, was I really angry just a few moments ago? Now that anger has dropped away completely (laughs) and I'm in an utterly different state of mind, fantasizing about maybe what the next meal will be like, thinking about something else. Okay, so in this way, you're seeing how a state of mind which seemed to be so strong, so persistent, so dominant, has now just by identifying it, by observing it, has faded away and replaced by something else. Yeah, so that was the first point that I wanted to make, is that one starts by putting the state of mind under the beam of observation, one ceases to take it as the basis for one's personal identity, and one sees it's just a transient condition mental state. The second point is that, sort of this is the promise of the Buddha's teaching, is that by training the mind according to the different many different methods that the Buddha has given, we can utterly transform the texture of our mind. And this is the gradual process, the gradual transformation that takes place over the long term, not just in one sitting, one meditation retreat, or just a few months of practice, but over the long term, using the appropriate antidotes for the different defilements or unwholesome tendencies of the mind, we can weaken, debilitate, and at least on many occasions, remove, eliminate those tendencies. For example, somebody might have an aggressive or inflammatory character. They get angry easily. They bear strong resentments. But if they take up, say, at least on a part-time basis, the practice of what we call metta, loving-kindness meditation— and then develop that even a little bit each day, like 15, 20 minutes of loving-kindness meditation. After a year, they might look back upon themselves and see, wow, my anger, my hatred has diminished like 10%, (laughs) 20%. (laughs) And then over 10 years, it doesn't quite work 
arithmetically. <laughs> it's not that it will disappear 100% after 10 years, but it will diminish quite significantly. I'm really glad you're hitting this point that it, it's not just about seeing your anger or whatever it is so that it doesn't own you. It's that over time, the very act of seeing the anger clearly and not being carried away by it can reduce the incidence of anger. Yes, yes, certainly, yeah, yeah. Especially when paired with what you call the appropriate antidotes, like in the case of anger, loving-kindness meditation. Yeah, I think that's also like an important aspect of practice, which in some of like the systems, contemporary systems of Vipassana meditation or insight meditation, just use sometimes single techniques, rather simplified, finely honed techniques without maybe taking sufficient advantage of the full like arsenal of methods of techniques that the Buddha provides in the discourses. And so there are like suttas where the Buddha will mention different defilements and then mention the particular practice that's the appropriate antidote for that state of mind or for that disposition. It's so interesting. So let's not be, if I'm hearing you correctly, let's not be mindfulness zealots. There are other practices, there are other arrows in the quiver that we can use for our own personal development. So you mentioned loving-kindness meditation, which has, is an antidote to aversion or hatred, ill will. What would be an antidote for lust or greed or desire? Okay, that depends on the particular type of lust or desire. So in the monastic life, of course, one of the big problems that monastics face, particularly in the younger years, is sexual desire. And so for that the sort of direct antidote that the Buddha provides for that is the meditation on the what they call the 32 parts of the body. So what one does is to take, one starts with one's own physical body, not with the body of an attractive person, and one examines this body from the top of the head to the soles of the feet, bounded by skin, and then one starts to analyze it in terms of its constituents. So in this body we have on the outer surface, the hair of the head, bodily hairs, nails, teeth, skin. Then we sort of cut through the skin, and then we have muscles, the sinews, bones, bone marrow, then the various organs, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, and so on, the bodily tissues. And so one goes through that over and over, and then that helps to sort of dispel the appearance of beauty that is the trigger for the arising of sexual desire. But then there'll be other types of craving or desire, like craving for worldly success, position, power, accumulation of wealth. In the world, we have people who are just accumulating like billions and billions of dollars that they're never going to use for anything. It just has no transactional value, but just symbolic value to give them a sense of self-importance. So the antidote to this craving for possessions and position and status and power, I would say the most effective is the meditation on death, reflecting on the fact that death is inevitable, inescapable, that we never know when death is going to strike us. And when we die, we have to leave all worldly goods, achievements, accomplishments behind. Is there an antidote to delusion? Yeah, the antidote to delusion is not so simple. From the Buddhist philosophical point of view, the core expression of delusion is the grasping of the notion of the truly existent self, the ego self. And so the antidote to that grasping of the idea of the ego self would be, this doesn't have to be a high level of direct insight, but one can do this as a reflective meditation, taking, in Buddhism, we analyze the person into the five, what are called the five aggregates, the five groups of factors. So we start off by taking the physical body, and one contemplates this body is not truly I, not truly mine, not myself, then we go to the feelings, 
the feelings are not mine, not I, not myself. And we come to third aggregate, perceptions or ideas, the thought formations, those are not not mine, not I, not myself. Then the volitional activities, the different projects, plans, ambitions, undertakings, all of those mental constructs. Also, one takes not mine, not I, not myself. And then even this consciousness itself, this awareness, is not mine, not I, not myself. So if one does this as a regular practice of just running through the five aggregates, just momentarily reflecting on each as being not mine, not I, not myself, this will be like an axe chopping away at the root of the tree of delusion. Last question for me. It's been a minute since I looked at the the actual text of the Satipatthana Sutta. It's not the easiest reading, as you know. It's, very, it's quite repetitive. <laughs> but the last time I looked at it, <laughs> there was a lot of verbiage about being mindful of stuff internally and externally and both internally and externally. So is, does that language show up around the third foundation of mindfulness? So should we, in other words, try to be mindful of the mind states of other people and both ours and theirs simultaneously? Yeah, it's an interesting question because in the sutta itself, one doesn't find an explanation of how those phrases are to be implemented. What is the practices involved? Uh, or, or even, like, what is the meaning of those phrases? And so different interpreters have come up with different interpretations. It would seem to me, I would see two different ways to understand this with regard to the mind. Okay, one way is that you know, one can't be directly observing the mind states of others unless one has the power to read the mind of others. But through people's words, gestures, body language, ways of behavior, and so forth, one can infer their state of mind. Yeah, so that would be one way to get some idea to be so-called contemplating the mind externally. So that would apply to like specific states of mind in relation to particular individuals. That would seem to be something that you could practice in the context of everyday life when one is interacting with people. But if one is sitting on one's cushion in the shrine room or a little meditation hall, particularly if one is on one's own, it doesn't seem that one could practice that under those conditions. So the alternative way I've come to understand that is that particular states arise within oneself, states of lust, states of anger, states of aversion, states of delusion, and so on, distraction, sluggishness of mind. One reflects that I'm not the only one that has these states. Other people, just about all other human beings, have those states of mind. And so in that way, one can universalize the mental states that one is experiencing within oneself. That strikes me as extremely valuable because it goes right to one of the stated goals of practice, which is not to take your own stuff so personally. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Can I just uh, nudge you a little bit to list any relevant resources that you've put out into the world or ways to support you or groups that you would like to see supported? Basically, I'm just trying to get you to plug anything you'd like to plug. Okay, I would like to plug... I have an organization which I established back in with some of my friends and students we established back in 2008. It's called Buddhist Global Relief. And the purpose of the organization is to provide assistance to communities around the world who are afflicted with chronic hunger and malnutrition. So we started out in 2008 with three pilot projects and with a bank account of, I think, $20,000 through a few helpful donations. And over the years, we've developed to the point where we now have 54 projects going on in countries ranging from Mongolia, Vietnam, Cambodia, India, Sri Lanka, Uganda, Malawi, Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, Haiti, and 
the United States. And so we started out with that mission of addressing chronic hunger and malnutrition. And so we thought that the way to do this is by providing direct food aid to those in need. But then we saw the need to tackle some of the underlying roots of hunger and malnutrition. And two of the main underlying roots of hunger and malnutrition we found to be the subordinate status of girls in many traditional cultures and the subordinate status of women. And so we expanded the range of our projects to include projects that enable girls to continue with their education until they complete at least high school, and in many cases now supporting girls to go to university. And on the other side, supporting women to start right livelihood projects to earn more to support their families. And so we have many projects in both of those, actually all three of those areas, direct food aid, the education of girls, right livelihood projects for women, and also as a kind of way of addressing the problem of climate change to support ecologically sustainable models of agriculture in, in many traditional cultures so that they don't give way to the industrial type of agriculture, which is often quite detrimental to the natural environment. Sounds like great work. Yeah, it's been quite a source of delight to see the way that the organization has grown and developed and brought in some very, very capable people. Bravo. So thank you for doing that work. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again to Bhikkhu Bodhi. Thank you as well to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.